Okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, Victor Salazar, welcome to What Else? It's well, great to have you on here. Thank you very much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm honored. And uh, like okay, I said earlier, I, okay, hope, okay. I hope I, I can be uh, okay. some value to your show. <laughs> it's going to be great. Um, do you have a middle name? Is there an L? No, it's it? a D, as in David, Victor David really? Salazar. Okay. Yeah. Are you named after people, your first two names? Uh, no, not that I'm aware of. They just like the names? Well, I was supposed to be, uh, I was supposed to be David, actually. Oh, is and, that right? Uh, I, I was, but then uh, my uncle had a boy a few months before me and uh, seemingly stole okay. the name David out from under my parents. And I, I remember my mother wasn't, uh, when she tells the story, wasn't that happy. Or thrilled, and then she was debating there was going to be Arthur. Yeah, I know, <laughs> no way. So uh, I couldn't be Art or Arthur, and uh, somehow she liked she liked Victor, and I think because it's uh, pronounced relatively the same in multiple languages and spelled relatively the same in multiple languages, and it's it's universal. That's right, like you, like me. <laughs> um, and you have tell me for people who are listening, your family. Your mom and dad and siblings? Yes. Uh, my, my parents are still uh, still with me, which is great. Uh, Dad's 89 and mom is 90. And they still live on the southeast side of Chicago where I grew up. And I have two older sisters. And, um, you know, I'm uh, Mexican-American. And uh, my parents are originally from, from Mexico and, and moved here and met here and uh, fell in love and started having kids. In the... Did they meet? They met here? Yeah, it's okay. it's interesting. They met they met here uh, around 1955. So what's what's interesting is that my father was born here, uh, although none of his siblings were. I guess his his family was traveling a lot when my grandmother was pregnant with him, and uh, they happened to be here in Chicago. She gave birth to him here. He spent like the first year and a half of his life here in Chicago, moved back to Mexico with his family. And then when he moved here in the 50s, because he was a U.S. citizen, he got drafted. Oh, uh, far out. And, but, yeah, and luckily, I mean, for him, he, he could have been sent to Korea. Uh, instead, uh, the Army needed troops in, uh, in Germany, so he was in, in Germany for almost three years. But prior to that, he met my mother, who moved here from Mexico City, uh, because uh, she moved here with her family. She's the, the oldest of nine siblings, and uh, they needed her to help take care of the family. So she gave up her teaching career over there in Mexico and gave that all up and, and moved here, meets my dad, falls in love with, with him. He gets drafted. And of course, uh, she says, I'll wait for you. Because back then, that's what you did, right? No. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, so she, she decided to wait for him and he served almost three years. And then when he came back, uh, probably around 1957, they got married here in Chicago and uh, then started having kids and and here I am <laughs> that's wild yeah did your mom grow up in Mexico City in Mexico City yeah okay and your dad grew up where he, but, he was in uh, Jalisco yeah okay. uh, which is uh, in, in Mexico but uh, and uh, it's just interesting that they just happened to, to meet here and and like I said before what's you know with with my mom giving up her teaching it you know she has a college degree uh, from from Mexico, and back then, for a woman to be college educated and to be a, an educator maybe was uh, not as common. And yet, because of her loyalty to her family, uh, she gave that all up. And uh, and to this day, I, I know, you know, she she feels a little bad about that. She I, I felt like she missed out, you know. You know how old how old was she then when she came here? Uh, she was in her twenties. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But again, that's what you did. And then, you know, she comes here and uh, doesn't really speak the language and none of her credentials carry over. And she ends up working in a card factory uh, with other uh, people of, of Mexican descent or a lot of people of Mexican descent and uh, doing that to support herself and help her family. And how, what's the age difference between you and your siblings? That's a good question. Uh, it's about... Uh, Let's see, the oldest sister be five years older than I am? Okay. Yeah, five, five years and then three years older and then, and then me. And I'm still pretty young at, at 39. That's I'm just fine. kidding. <laughs> so, <laughs> Did you get along with your sisters when you were growing up? 
Absolutely, yeah. We yeah. were uh, we were very close. Um, and I'd say that you know we're, we're still close, although you know, sadly, one one sister maybe I'm not as close as I I should be. Uh, there's a lot of water under that bridge, and uh, still dealing with some stuff, you know. But um, but yeah, we were very very close growing up, extremely close, and we you know we shared a love of uh, of music and and just having fun. You know, they they treated me like a like an equal, which was nice, not like a you know, a, a pain in the ass younger brother, or you know, it was. It was. We had a good, good upbringing. And so, let's talk a little about music stuff. So, you play the drums. When did you start playing? Yeah, good question. I um, well, here let me let me start yeah. further back. You know, often when people ask me why do you play the drums, I always have to say it's it's because I love music. So first and foremost, I play the drums because I love music. And I love music because uh, my parents always played music in the house. And when I say that, they don't, they don't play musical instruments, but they were playing vinyl mm-hmm. or the radio. And uh, so growing up, I still remember at a very young age, whether I was three, four years old, uh, them playing all kinds of uh, records and a variety of different music, um, Rachmaninoff. Mariachi music, The Carpenters, you know, The Four Seasons, Johnny Cash, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, just you name it. Um, And so I was exposed to a variety of music, and I knew that uh, ultimately I wanted to play an instrument. My older sisters were playing musical instruments. You know, one sister was playing guitar. Another was playing accordion. And uh, I always feel like I have to defend the accordion sometimes. Um, You do. Your reaction was serious, which was nice for a change but sometimes i get i, I get a, a lot ch- of accordion jokes I, yeah worry. yeah no and i get a chuckle from people when i say you know she played the accordion because they think of uh, somebody shaking the bellows and playing polkas or you know and and the accordion could be a very very serious instrument and uh, she played it for many years probably 14 15 years and was in all kinds of competitions and playing mendelssohn's concerto and did beautiful you know, pieces. And I always say, think of the accordion uh, as you would hear in a, in a tango. And, and, and then they say, oh, yeah, that's very, very nice and beautiful and serious. I said, well, that's the way she played it. Anyway, so I knew I wanted to play an instrument. And uh, I remember when I was in first grade, I attended a, a talent show at uh, St. Peter and Paul, a uh, grade school uh, on the south side of Chicago. And, and it's a talent show from... Um, first grade to eighth graders all up there performing. And I don't really recall many of the performers that particular day except for one. It was a trio. And there was a drummer, a bass player, and a dancer. And they were, they were three African-American boys. And um, the, the drummer, he, I think he was an eighth grader, tall, lanky dude. I could still see him in my mind's eye with a big fro, cool suit, and a blue sparkle drum set. Can't tell you what brand. I didn't know much about drums back then. But uh, he was laying down this killer groove and real funky. There was a bass player who was like a fifth grader or a sixth grader. He had a brown suit on, and the bass seemed to dwarf his body. But he was, you know, popping and slapping and, you know, laying it down. And then there was a dancer who was like a third grader. And uh, he was also in a, in a cool suit. And he was doing like his best Michael Jackson, James Brown, James Brown impression and uh, and that was that was it. So bass, drums, and a dancer, and somehow this this group or this drummer really spoke to me. And uh, it was one of the first live performances I, I saw, or one of the first live drummers, probably the first live drummer I ever saw. And I said, "Wow, I've got to do that. That's the instrument for me." So I I picked the drums. I knew right then and there, like that's it. It's great. And did you go to? the school band department then and music department and well, sign at, up or how did that work well at that point no so so that's that's first grade <laughs> and then uh after that you know i expressed an interest and I, I told my my folks and i remember uh my mom she must have gone to a music store she got me you know a little uh, or a pair of sticks and a record that came with you know the drumsticks how to play the drums <laughs> so no teacher at that point and no practice pad uh instead i had uh sort of one of those foam um, cushions that you for the stadium that, you know, oh, yeah, you, sure. you take with you, <laughs> foam wrapped in vinyl. Yeah. And I beat the crap out of that. 
and then finally, I did get some uh, private lessons at home uh, from uh, this gentleman called uh, Walter Brianti. And he was the traveling uh, music teacher who came to your house. And he was already teaching uh, one sister guitar and the other teacher accordion. And he said, oh, yeah, I can teach drums, too. Apparently, this guy could teach everything. And he taught me some basics um, just on, a, on, a, on that pad, actually. Mm-hmm. He didn't even say I had to get another pad or I didn't have a snare drum at that point. Um, so, uh, but it was, it was, yeah, it was fun. Also, during that time, of course, I'm playing to records like we all usually do at that age. And again, playing to all kinds of music. Yeah. So that was, that was fun. And it wasn't really till, I guess it was uh, later in grade school and high school, you know, I joined the cadet band and the school band and was just playing snare drum, mm-hmm. but really just messing around. You know, I wasn't that, uh, that serious about playing whatever music we were playing in school. It was a way, was a way to pass the time, goof around, uh, not be in another class. <laughs> so, uh, you know. It was it was still it was still fun. When did you get a drum kit? Uh, that has to be uh, around uh, 1978 or so. Okay. Yeah, and um, it, it's funny. I've I've only owned uh, three drum sets in my entire life, and uh, you know, usually somebody my age, I might have gone through uh, ten or eight or you know, but. I started on, on this big Slingerland, you remember that set, you've, Slingerland chrome over wood drum set, big drum set, uh, you know, with like eight toms <laughs> and uh, with a six-inch tom. I had to have a six-inch tom because uh, around the time I, was, I got the set, I was into uh, Carl Palmer from Emerson, Lincoln Palmer. And he had a six-inch tom and uh, a lot of, lot of drums. And, and I remember just picking this uh, kit out of a Slingerland catalog. Uh, I wanted a Ludwig drum set because Alan White from Yes had played Ludwig, and so did uh, Carl. But this uh, particular dealer didn't have Ludwig, and they said, we have Slingerland. And uh, I saw the the picture in the catalog, and I said, good enough for me, chrome over wood? Come on, killer. So I, I got that. But the reason why I just have a, a, you know two more sets beyond that is that um, you know I ended up keeping that Slingerland set for decades, and uh, it served me well. Um, and I got used to playing a big drum set. So when, and I still play big drum sets. So when people ask me, why do you play such a big drum set? Do you really need all those drums? It really goes back to, that's just what I grew up on. That's what mm-hmm. I'm used to. And, uh, I haven't really deviated from that. What did you do with the silver kit? I sold it. Okay. Um, I didn't, I didn't really have any emotional attachment to it. I had gotten my use out of it. I also, uh, customized it to the point where, yeah, if uh, a collector were interested in it, uh, they might not be anymore. <laughs> you know, I modified the spurs, mm-hmm. uh, which are the legs on the bass drum, and the the tom mounting system. And uh, I mean, I really butchered it to make it more uh, updated and to function better. Uh, but I sold it to get my my big uh, GMS Sparkle Silver Sparkle kit. She said something there that's interesting to me that you didn't have an emotional attachment to it. Do you, is that kind of how you are about equipment and gear or things? Or are there possessions, whether it's musical instruments or otherwise, that you do get attached to? Yeah, no, I do get attached to things. Um, For some reason, certain gear, you know, if I feel I've gotten my use out of it, then I can part with it. But but certain things, no, I'm attached to, whether it's uh, uh, postcards from dear friends uh, you know, or, or, or gifts from someone, something that really uh, brings back a special memory, which which sort of contradicts, you know, don't the drums bring back special memories and don't they have incredible meaning to me? And, and they do, but it was more like the music I created uh, on the drums rather than the drums themselves, yeah. I think. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Um... You obviously you owned a drum store, right? You like the gear. Yes, obsessed with gear. What do you think it is? Like, do you? And maybe it's. I'm sure it's probably multiple factors. Is it the aesthetics of it? Is it the the utility of it to make music? Like, what what are the things when you think about like someone's like 
like me is asking you like what do you love about <laughs> drums about right the the thing the thing yeah i love to look at them you know yeah. i was the kid uh i am obsessed with drums and i know a lot about drums and i'm not saying that to sound cocky but i know a lot about drums because i've i've it ain't bragging if it's true <laughs> well thank you but i've i've read a lot about drums you know i'm the kid as a kid that would uh you know f- fall asleep with catalogs on his chest with the light on and i'm reading you know, every paragraph, every detail, looking at every photo, um, trying to figure out how things work, what's good about this design, that design, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it is aesthetically, I love looking at drums. And um, and it's funny. I, it's, um, I was just walking around downtown with my, my six, uh, nine-year-old nephew now, sorry. And um, we, were, we were walking past uh, the Bentley dealership. Uh, it's over on like near Rush Street. Oh yeah, I yeah, know yeah. It. Ben, yeah, ben, Bentley. They got Ferraris in there. They, you know. But we stopped. I said, "Oh, we got to stop by and look at these cars." And I'm just looking at the lines, uh, sort of the beauty of of the design of these vehicles. And to me, it reminds me of the the cool lines of uh, of a of a drum set, especially with the hardware, with the chrome. Um, of course, not all drum sets have chrome anymore, but but you get it. And uh, same reason why I like looking at motorcycles. Um, although I don't ride, and I'll never ride, and uh, I'll never own a motorcycle, but I sure like the lines. You know, I just think drums are are sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I appreciate about drums, and and I don't need mean to knock any other instrument, certainly not yours, <laughs> or uh, other instruments I love like the piano, but the drums are not a fixed musical instrument in terms of how it's set up. And what I mean is, like, take a piano. We have 88 keys, and they're arranged a certain way, and that's it. And we have three pedals, and that's it. And there's different quality levels of that instrument, whether it's a, a Steinway you know, grand piano or an upright, but it is what it is. And you can't say one day... I'm going to take these two black keys and I'm going to move them over here. These three white keys I'm going to get rid of. I'm adding two pedals. You just can't do it. And, and again, a guitar is essentially a guitar, and, and certainly you could change effects and pickups and strings, but it is, it's set up the way it is. But a drum set, it's really just uh, components thrown together. It's a contraption. That's how we get the term trap, drum set. Yeah. It's a contraption of pieces thrown together or you know, put together nicely. And, and everybody's setup can be unique to them to themselves. So I have a lot of drums and a lot of pedals and a lot of cymbals, but uh, you can have four drums or two drums and you can play standing or sitting or you can sit far away or, you know, you can have multiple hi-hats or no hi-hats. Um, you could do whatever you want with it and it's still correct. And, uh, you know, that's, that makes, you know, my instrument, I think, very unique. Do you think uh, I was talking about this somebody a little while ago about people's voice on the instrument? I think it's with singers, it's easy to hear their voice, sure. right? And I think because as human beings, we're attuned to the sound of and the and the fine gradations in the sounds of a human voice. Um, and there's people I think who have a a distinctive voice on guitar, on the saxophone, or things like that. But I also think that's true of drums. And um, I'm interested in your thoughts on that and, and and like people that you think, are you able to discern people's playing because you're attuned to it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think people have distinct, drummers have distinct sounds. I mean, just off the top of my head, if you listen to Bill Bruford with Yes or King Crimson, he's got a distinct sound. Certainly Stuart Copeland with The Police, Alex Van Halen. With Van Halen, you start hearing those cymbals. You, you hear the Peisty cymbals or that uh, snare drum or bass drum. Certain John Bonham is another drummer. Uh, they have distinct sounds. And it really has to do, I think, with, with touch. And again, I'm not saying that you can't have a similar effect, say, on a piano with a different mm-hmm. pianist uh, touching the same piano that you played. But uh, certainly over the years, I've had a lot of... Um, my friends, uh, who happen to be some of the world's greatest drummers, uh, come by my studio and play my drums because they find it intriguing and entertaining to see, you know, seven pedals on the floor and 50 cymbals. And um, 
what's amazing about all these drummers playing my drums is they all sound like themselves. And so they're playing my drums, which are usually the wrong brand or a different brand, the wrong tuning, the wrong sizes of drums, the wrong cymbals, the wrong sticks. And yet they're playing my drums and you close your eyes and you say, yes, that's Stanton Moore, that's uh, Terry Bozio, that's Simon Phillips. Um, I remember Jeff Hamilton, uh, who's a great uh, jazz and big band drummer, was playing my small acrylic set. And I've got him riding on my 26-inch gong, which is I use as a ride, which is totally unconventional. And he's swinging on a ride, and I've got him chicking hi-hats, which are Remo spokes made out of roto-toms. Totally wrong. And he's swinging, and he sounds like Jeff Hamilton on a, on a gong as a ride and spokes hi-hats, clanging. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it's really his, the person's touch and approach on the instrument. Yeah, so you think... Because, I mean, some of those other examples, Alex Van Halen symbols or whatever, it could be one might think, well, that's attributable to the production or the recording technique or that particular Sure, gear. that's part of it. But, yeah, but you're saying that and even beyond their particular, like, pocket, right, their sort right. of metric element, sure. you're talking about just a touch thing that, that the way they hit the thing. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like if, uh, you know, we... Say we're auditioning cymbals and uh, you and I are in a room and, and you'll audition a crash cymbal and I'll audition the same one. It might sound different, you know, with the two of us playing the same cymbal with the same drumstick. Yeah. It's our touch. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, do you, do you think that's the same with guitars? Um, like, like if, and I don't play guitar, but if I strum your guitar, it's not going to have the same intonation. It w- you put it on me and you hand me the pick and I strum and it's, you forget it. Right, it'll have a different, and some of that I think has to do with, like, I think maybe to your point, you know, people are used to a certain setup, right? So if they're used to a thin set of hi-hats, right, they're going to have, and they sit down at a kit where the hi-hats are thicker, they're going to make, oh, wait a minute, this is it's going to feel weirder to them. So they sure. won't be able to get, they won't be able to elicit the same sound out of it. But also it's not just that. I think it's that to your point, the, the, the approach, right. The way someone's touch. And it's the same thing, I think on guitar or piano or saxophone, right? But, right. Well, that, that reminds me of a funny or interesting story. And for the sake of anonymity, maybe I won't divulge who the famous, Pop right. star Nobody was. <laughs> Get out of here! But anyway. famous, famous singer, um, folky kind of singer. You know, plays acoustic guitar. You could just say who it is. But but no, but I, I uh, Kenny Loggins. So anyway, he's obsessed uh, with uh, Al Di Miola, oh, or not obsessed, but is a fan, I should say, of Al Di Miola. And and over the years, I guess, makes friends with Al and really loves his guitar playing and his and his tone. And uh, establishes a relationship with him and then ends up hooking up with uh, Al's uh, guitar tech and uh, asks if he can f- get a full line, a rundown of everything that Al uses and the pickups and the guitars and the, the everything, pedal board, cables, and because he wants to buy everything that Al uses. And, uh, and apparently with the help of Al's tech, um, Kenny buys everything to sound like L. And then even borrows the tech, I guess, at his home studio, sets up everything with this guy's help, and then starts playing and doesn't sound a thing <laughs> like Al Di Miola. And uh, maybe was a bit frustrated, but also left and learned a valuable lesson <laughs> at the same time. Costly lesson. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think people are always chasing the magical piece of gear that will make you sound like so-and-so. Right. I think that's a, a difficult road to right. get to the end of. Tell me about, I want to go back to something you said about oh, your parents playing music around the house and stuff sure. like that. Um, did they ever, was it just kind of around or did they ever sit down and be like, you got to check this out. I'm going to put on such, such No, they never, they never did. I think I just gravitated uh, towards uh, the old record player uh on my own i don't was it a filco or something like that when the, with the four legs you know off the ground a foot and i i could tippy toe and barely look down uh at the spinning you know 33 and a third uh, vinyl 
going yeah. by. Um, they would put it on for me. I was too too small to do that. But um, and I would stand and watch the record spin and watch the needle advance towards the center label and and just spend hours listening and watching. Um, but no, they didn't encourage me. I just I, I just sort of gravitated on my own. What were some of the when you were young, when you were like grade school, sure. and junior high? What were some of the bands that you like to listen to a lot that you really latched onto? Um, well, here I, I got to go back because this is yeah. this is something. Uh, when I was uh, when was it? It was like uh, I was four or five. Uh, Frankie Valli's first solo record came out, and it's um, and I remember my mother uh, was a member of a Columbia House. Uh, Record club. Remember, they'd send sure. you the records, and you can order that stuff. And somehow, uh, occasionally, Columbia House would make a mistake, and they sent an album by mistake. And she opened it, and then was going to send it back. And somehow, I, I don't know. I liked the cover, and it was the Four Seasons holding up Frankie on a tray, and it says, you know, Four Seasons present Frankie Valley, and it's it's got uh, can't take my eyes off of you. That's that's the album, and um, maybe somehow I convinced her, no, let's just keep it. Let's listen to it. And uh, and uh, and so we did, and so I became a huge, huge Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons fan. And early on, uh, this is right before I, I picked up the drums, I guess, or, or gravitated towards drums. I thought I wanted to be a singer, and thankfully, uh, I didn't pursue that because I don't have uh, you know top-notch singing voice. But but anyway, I had to point that out because that was a huge part of. of yeah. My love for music, Frankie Valley, love Frankie. But then, uh, yeah, as I, uh, because I have two older sisters, especially my oldest sister, you know, she got me into uh, a lot of music that I still love today. You know, it's it's often the case with uh, when you have an older sibling that they might introduce you to something cool. Uh, I was going to make a, jo- a joke, like yeah. whether it's drugs or you know alcohol, and that wasn't the case. But I just had to make the joke, and uh, so uh, my older sister. Uh, she got me into, you know, like Zeppelin and The Who and and progressive rock and, um, you know, uh, Disraeli Gears by Cream and, and all this classic stuff that um, I'm glad, you know, she did. Did that when, So when she played that stuff for you, was that stuff where you're like, oh, interesting, cool, I like this? Or or was it stuff you really that really resonated? Was any of that stuff that really resonated with you? A, a lot writing? of it did. Not everything. I mean, yeah. some things I'm glad I, I heard, whether it was uh, The Outlaws. <laughs> uh, uh, but it was it was a big variety. It was it was just, it was like part two of, of what my parents started, yeah. right, with their wide variety, eclectic taste. Sure. This was more sort of rock and jazz oriented uh, specifically, but but a lot of it resonated. You know, The Who... Led Zeppelin is, is still one of my all-time favorite bands. And I had mentioned um, getting into Carl Palmer and progressive rock is because of, you know, my sister. I remember it was early on. She said, oh, you, you like drums. You should probably listen to Carl Palmer, you mm-hmm. know, from, and she got me brain salad surgery, you know, which uh, I don't really listen to it much anymore. But it's, it's a, it was a huge influence, you know, that crazy, bombastic, busy playing of Carl's. You know, avant-garde music it was great stuff. Do you remember who was, was there a first drummer that you wanted to emulate? So you're, you're listening to these records, you were playing your pad and then, a, and then the snare drum and then a the kit. Right. Was there a point where you're like, that's the kind of a site? I mean, it sounds like the, seeing those kids play, right, was a formative experience. Absolutely. But in terms of records you were listening to, were there things where like, I really want to be able to play that? I would have to say an early influence or a big influence it was Carl Palmer. I mean, he's the reason why I play a big set, started on a big set, have a six-inch tom, <laughs> you know. And and even though um, I really don't listen to him much anymore, uh, I am happy to say he's he's now a friend of mine, which is unbelievable. Uh, but uh, and he's still doing it. He's still out there uh, playing solo and with Asia, but. Um, he was a, a huge influence, and then John Bonham, uh, Keith Moon, definitely. Mm-hmm. And then, then I progressed and moved on to uh, you guys like uh, Neil Peart of Rush is a huge influence. Terry Bozio, huge influence as well. Big and Bill Bruford, Alan White, um, 
And concert experiences, early concert experiences played a big part in, uh, as far as, you know, um, who I am as a, as a player. And I mentioned before, you know, my sisters were uh, a big part of, um, uh, you know, why I, I developed as a musician. Uh, and they would take me to concerts uh, because I like music. And so I'd go with these older kids uh, to these shows where maybe I was a little too young. But, but I was really into the music and I was a good kid. And I remember the guys, you know, my, my uh, sister's friends, these, these guys that were their age and already in high school and I wasn't. Um, they liked me because I could talk about music sort of uh, on their terms, like intelligently about music, <laughs> you know, not just say I like it because uh, it's got a good beat, you know, like the American Bandstand uh, response. And, uh, and I remember going to see concerts like in 1977, going to see um, Yes, on the Going for the One tour. I think that was at the old International Amphitheater on, was it 31st in Harlem or uh, Halstead, something like that. And, um, and what an experience. We had great seats. And I'm watching one of my favorite bass players still, Chris Squire, for the first time, and Alan White is up there, and Rick Wakeman with his cape, you know, playing keyboards and... Steve Howe and John Anderson, and, and I just I was just I was beside myself, and uh, I still remember being so focused on on music. I remember it's kind of interesting. There's a joint that's being passed uh, a lot at these shows, and I remember this show specifically. And I'm sort of aware that oh yeah, it's a, somebody smoking a joint, and it's just it, and I, but I I can't be bothered with this thing because Alan White. You know, we're like in the eighth row and Alan White is in front of me playing and I'm watching him for the first time. And I just remember all night, oh, yeah, this thing, they're just passing it. Not really annoyed, but not even looking at it. Just it's automatic. I'm reaching to the left or the right, and just passing this joint back and forth and not not being remotely interested in taking a hit or any, anything other than what's going on that stage. And uh, it's it's I, I still remember that. I just I couldn't uh, take my eyes off of the off of the stage or focus on anything else yeah you uh so you've gone to many many gigs or shows over the years right oh man and i and and i go out a lot now <laughs> yeah so i was gonna ask you about that do yeah. you still so a lot of times you're going if i understand correctly right you're going because you know the drummer and you're going to say hi or that's correct and they want to borrow a snare drum from you or whatever yeah. it is right, right. Or, or, or sometimes they just want to say hi Right. <laughs> Understood. No, I'm just kidding. Right. But sometimes you're going there in some kind of like capacity when you had your shop, yeah. right? As a person who's hooking them up with gear or Absolutely. consulting or whatever. Absolutely. So, yes. But then sometimes you're going to see your people. Yeah. Um, do you still love to go just to go, just to go see the music? I, Does it still. I really do. Yeah. And in fact,. Um, it's it's funny because uh, I was thinking about this yesterday. I went out last night, and uh, it was a uh, double bill. It was uh, a younger band, Hailstorm, uh, opening up for Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know both drummers in, in both groups, and, and Glenn Sobel, great drummer from Alice's band, he actually invited me, and he says, you got to come out. And I love watching him. And uh, and and I, I have to say, maybe I'm not the, the biggest Alice Cooper fan, meaning I didn't really grow up listening to Alice Cooper. But when you're at the show, where I'm at these shows, um, you know, I appreciate uh, good musicianship, uh, killer production, um, wonderful presentation, uh, passion. And, and I'm telling you, yesterday's show was just fantastic. So I, I really, I, I'm, I'm there and I'm really into it. And I get inspired and I, you know, sometimes chuckle or smile or mm-hmm. laugh. Um, you know, I, I really have a good time at, at these shows. And uh, yesterday's show was was great. Alice's band is just spot on. And they're all there's three guitarists and they're running around on stage and hitting their marks uh, for the lighting guy to, to shine on them and, and uh, playing their asses off. And it's it's a it's a great show. And, you know, there's a guillotine and. He gets electrocuted and all that, but no. Regardless, they they play well and it's and it's fun. So when I when I go out, I really do. Uh, oftentimes, get get I get inspired and uh, 
And, uh, yeah, I leave feeling uh, elated and entertained and, and good. That's great. Yeah. I used to always think, like, really good shows maybe want to do one of two things. Either go home from the show and start practicing that night. Absolutely. Stay up and practice. Or throw my instrument <laughs> in the garbage. Because I'm never going to get there. There's, there's some of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I can relate to that. Um, but, yeah, I end up going out a lot. I mean, sometimes if I'm not you know, uh, practicing myself or, or doing a gig or whatever. But um, I'm at a show and I might go out. I mean, I could go out three or four nights a week, which is a lot. And it's because we're in Chicago, which is great. So everybody comes through Chicago. And, you know, we've got Riot Fest and Lollapalooza. But you got uh, great jazz uh, musicians coming through. And, and I might go see a metal show like Meshuggah one night uh, or you know, a, a jazz ensemble with Peter Erskine another mm-hmm. night. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. And uh, so there's great variety, and I, I really en- I enjoy it. I really do. How much sleep do you get on average <laughs> it, it depends. Um, I should sleep more. Uh, I should also sleep more consistently uh-huh. through the night. I, uh, I don't know. It could be, you know, between five and seven hours. Okay. Does that feel like enough for you or no? <laughs> uh, not all the time, no. It, it depends. Sometimes I can't explain it. Sometimes I don't, uh, I don't get a ton of sleep and I wake up feeling great. So it's can't explain it. And, and if I'm out really late sometimes, it's not like I'm out you know, partying with these, these bands uh, not, not too often. And we're just out hanging out. You know, I, don't, I like my cocktails and I like my wine, but I don't, I don't really you know, drink... Mm-hmm. You know, heavily. Uh, I drink for the taste. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, and I don't, I, luckily, well, for, for me anyway, I don't do any drugs or anything like that. And, um, yeah, I made that reference earlier about passing the joint. And so I've always been around drugs. And then you remember college? Remember college? And I didn't really even drink then, probably zero, and uh, certainly didn't do any drugs. And to this day... Uh, I've never done any drugs in my life or smoked a cigarette or anything. And I just, um, and I'm not saying this to, to be yeah, on some high horse or anything. It's just, just something interested. I've never been interested, yeah. but I certainly had ample opportunity and I've been around so many musicians and there's lines of blow there and all, all kinds of stuff. And I know a lot of musicians that uh, have had issues with addiction or uh, are still on drugs or, uh, and I've just never been, been interested. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. No appeal, right? No appeal. You know, like I said, I like, I like my cocktails and my wine. <laughs> Not too excess, though. Yeah, I get it. So, because I mean, you, I've known you a long time. Yes, right, and you're sort of, and I feel like you've got a good amount of energy, and and part of that I think is your right, your personality and your wiring and stuff. But I'm also wondering if you like how you kind of manage for that, right? Because you were, I know during the period when you owned the drum shop, right, you were very busy and working a lot of hours Extremely. and stuff. And so sustaining that, all that stuff. Yeah, it, 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 it was tough or it gets tough sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do have uh, some periods, I guess, or I've gone through some periods where like there's one day where I just can't do anything. I'm just completely fried, you know? So that certainly happens. It, it's far and few between, you know, that, that happens, but it it has. Yeah. <laughs> and I I should probably, you know, I was into running uh, a few years ago, and I need to get into that again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I should I should be exercising more and running more, uh, doing a bit a lot of walking, which is good. That's that my that's good. my number one. Would you just do you listen to music or anything like that, or you just walk to walk, or yeah, I walk to walk, and you know, Humboldt Park's beautiful to walk through, and um, you know, what's that's another thing. I've uh, never really had. Remember the old Walkmans, Sony Walkmans, and and then of course, uh, you know, uh, iPods and all that. I never, uh, never really got into that. Uh, when I listen to music, very often it's just in my head. And so I've got no headphones, and I can play anything that's in my head <laughs> and, and listen to it. And, um, and I've also uh, cheated. I can practice. Sometimes I'll practice drumming as I'm walking. Uh, say I'm working on an original 
song, I can slow it down, and I can just tap on my uh, index finger and my thumbs uh, as on the side uh, of my body as I'm walking, and nobody will notice that I'm, I'm not air drumming crazily or anything, right. and I'm just working out some stickings and some patterns and, um, you know, uh, making use of, of my time that way. But yeah, very often I, I, I don't, when, when walking, I don't, I don't listen to music, um, obviously, uh, it's just in my head. So in those situations, are you going for walks to just to go for, like, not to go from point A to point B, but you're just going for a walk? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It feels, it feels good. It, it sort of um, can free your mind. You can be inspired to think of things. Um, there was a study that, this was interesting, that, that uh, was talking about a lot of people come up with some of their best ideas in the shower. And I could relate to that. There's times where um, I don't know what it is about the shower. Maybe who knows. But uh, I've been inspired to come up with some ideas, whether it's musical ideas or business ideas, uh, just uh, standing in the shower. And it's similar to maybe when I'm going for a walk, just sort of feeling free. Mm -hmm. I'm not not sure what goes on in the shower (laughs) per se, but but I've heard of studies that said some of your best thinking comes – comes in there. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So what, when you have ideas, do you have a notebook? Do you write things down? Like, How do you, just in your life, keep track or, of your ideas and or follow up on them? Or do you just keep them in your uh, head? If I, you know, I try to uh, write them down in my notes on my phone. Mm-hmm. I could dictate. I dictate a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so this way there's a, a record. It could just be a word. It could be something certainly more structured. Mm-hmm. Um I've recorded melodies, you know, singing into the phone. You could do that, mm-hmm. save that, or play something, you know, record something uh, on, a, on a pad or the yeah. drum kit, save an idea so you don't forget it. Are you good at following up on those things later? Uh, it depends. It depends on – I don't always feel pressured to. It just depends on – I'll look it over, and if it's not as important as I thought it was, uh, mm. I might take some considerable time before I return <laughs> to it. If, if at all. <laughs> well, you know, so, sometimes when you, you think, um, depending on your, your mood, you might think, this is the best thing I've ever thought of in my life. <laughs> and then you go back and read it, see it, hear it, and you're like, what the heck was I thinking? This is just, this is garbage, man. <laughs> you know, but it, it depends. Perspective. Perspective can certainly uh, affect how you, uh, how you view your creative output. <laughs> So I know you just got back from some traveling. Yes. Um, do you like traveling around? Do you like that? I do. Uh, yeah, I was out uh, working with the Smashing Pumpkins and uh, Jimmy Chamberlain, great drummer, and uh, setting up some drums for him uh, in Europe for a number of gigs. And it was great because there was some wonderful time off. There was four days off in Madrid. Uh, I really enjoyed Berlin. Nuremberg was great. Oslo. I mean, great, great cities. And um, had you been to these places before or no? No, okay. uh, many of them. No, I mean, some yes, but uh, many no. And um, we were speaking of, of walking uh, a while ago. And the last date I was in Barcelona. And uh, before my flight, I got up early and uh, flight to come back home. I, I said, I've, I've got to see the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, I looked it up on the phone. It was a 45 minute walk to the sea from my hotel. And I did it in like 32 minutes, <laughs> and uh, I was sweating. It was hot yeah. over there. And uh, but but uh, nice, uh, you know, a great walk and uh, you know coffee and a little sweet. And uh, I mean, it was I, I really enjoyed just sort of walking around. It wasn't so much to uh, even buy anything. It was more to, to walk around, eat, certainly eat uh, at, in these cities. Um, I did enjoy it. I really did. It's it's, it's beautiful. There, there there's some beautiful places out there. Are you an adventurous eater? Uh, yes and no. Um, I, I'm not going to eat insects. <laughs> if that's what you're, if you're getting at, at that, something extreme, nothing extreme. Okay. But, but, I'll, but I'm willing to try things. Um, and I was eating, you know, when, when we were, or when I was hanging out with, with Jimmy from the Pumpkins, um, 
he's on a on a strict diet. Uh, he's in he's in the best shape of his life, and uh, he's he's eating all vegan and oil free. And so we'd have to work around that, and uh, to find him something. And we would. Uh, and then very often, because uh, you know what he was ordering looked appetizing, I I would give it a try. So I'd say to that degree, I was adventurous, and I was never disappointed. Some of the stuff um, that we ate, uh, I wouldn't necessarily uh, think to order, you know, on my own. I mean, we're we're from the Midwest, man. We eat our our meat, <laughs> you know, and uh, I like my pizza, <laughs> but uh, but no, I am willing to if it's quality. I'll try it. But if it's um, – I still have an aversion to this day. If it's got like a – especially seafood with the eyes and the antenna. And I, I just kind of don't want to see that on my plate. Yeah. I just – I just – I can't. Do you, like, do you cook at home? Oh, no. <laughs> no, I, I – it's a shame. I, I say that. I'm just making fun of myself. I really should – I should cook or I should have um, – Learned, you know, my mom's good cook, and uh, I, I just, uh, it's, it's really a shame. So no, I, you know, I, I have cereal. Uh, I can boil water, mm. um, toast. No, and and I, but then I appreciate the art form of, of cooking. I mean, I really, but some of it just seems um, either so uh, over my head or beyond my skill level, or a lot of it is uh, lack of patience. I just want to eat it and, uh, you know, to invest uh, an hour or more, you know, to create mm-hmm. this wonderful dish or um, I, I just I can't do it. I don't seem to have the patience for that. I have a lot of yeah. patience, but not for that. I just yeah. want to consume. OK, that makes sense. <laughs> I want to go back to one thing you mentioned. You talked about when you're walking, doing some kind of, you know, air drumming or kind of working out right. those things. Do you find that then those things stick and and apply? Like next time you go back to the drum kit, it's there. The thing you practiced while walking has actually improved. A lot of it, a lot of times, yes, absolutely. Especially when I slow it way down, you know, to you know, quarter note equals uh, you know, sixty-four BPM, and yeah. you know, I really can can uh, determine the sticking. What is the left doing? What's the right doing? Where do they f- hit together? What's, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, I really, I think it does stick. It really does help. Absolutely. And I've even practiced entire shows. Say there's an upcoming show and I just want to play the whole show in my head. And I'll just play it on my fingertips walking. An entire, it could be a 45-minute set. Mm-hmm. And I could, I could do it. And, and nobody would, again, nobody could tell that I'm doing right. that. It would look a little wacky, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. And that, and that that practice then translates to the... It it really can, yeah. Uh, even, you know, driving, playing the steering wheel, uh, or... Uh, and I'm a, I'm a good driver, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm a very, very good driver. Yeah. And so, uh, but even working on my left foot, uh, in in my van mm-hmm. uh, has been a really good exercise. Uh, I could be, I could drive and then play along to something, uh, you know, on the CD player, and it's. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll use my left foot because my my right foot is is occupied with the gas and the brake. Presumably, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and so uh, I've worked out a lot of cool stuff just with my left foot. I've really worked on it, just driving. That's cool. Um. I want to jump back to we're talking about walks and travel and stuff. What do you like to do with your downtime? You know what I love? I love uh, I love movies. I love um, I love movies almost as much as I love music, and uh, I really appreciate you know film as as an art form. And uh, yeah, if I can catch up on some movies, and my taste is all over the place. I mean, I like. I dig big blockbusters and, you know, total escapist entertainment. You know, I, I like that. But I like, you know, serious um, serious storytelling with mm-hmm. beautiful direction. You know, like when I watch a movie, whether it's in the theater or in, on television, um, without getting distracted from, the, you know, leaving the – following the story, 
I will look at a shot sometimes and say, wow, look at how this is framed or, wow, this is one take. They're still going. They haven't cut. We're at a minute 46, and if they've flubbed a line, they'd have to go back and reshoot this, you know. So I'm, I'm watching on multiple mm-hmm. levels at the same, same time. And uh, what was fun for me, I caught up on some movies, uh, you know, flying to Europe as you got the time. And uh, one movie that well, – the last movie I saw on the way home, Molly's Game, uh, Jessica Chastain uh, was in it. It, it. Tremendous. You know, the critics were saying it's probably her best work. Tremendous movie. I would agree. She's outstanding. Um, just a great story. And, and when you watch a film like that, too, I appreciate it on, on multiple levels. Like, for instance, there's very few actors actually in it. So what's sustaining your interest in the film are just really two or three actors, and that's it. That's all you got. So you better have a good script. They better be acting really well, or else it's, it's a dud. Do you have uh, go-to movies that you recommend to people? Yeah, and, and it's funny. They're, I think they're from the same era. Um, maybe they were just imprinted because of the time, you know. Uh, Breaking Away is uh, from 1979, Peter Yates' film. Uh, you've seen Breaking Away, haven't you? It's it's the bicycle racing. Movie. I know what it is. Yeah, I don't Dennis know if Christopher seen it. is. Uh, I don't think I've seen it beginning to end. It's a it's a great boy. Is it good? And it's uh, yeah. It came out in '79, and um, Dennis Christopher hasn't done too much since then. But uh, young Daniel Stern is is in there, and Jackie Earl Haley is in it, and. Uh, uh, Quaid, um, uh, Dennis Quaid is in there. That's one of his right. first movies. And they're playing high schoolers and they're not sure about their future and they're, you know, they're in Indi- Indiana and they're not sure if they're going go to go to college and one of them is a racist bicycles and uh, very, uh, just an inspiring movie. And maybe it spoke to me because I was around that age when I saw it. Um, another movie, and it's funny, it's the, it's the same damn year, 1979, uh, is uh, A Little Romance. And, and again, maybe it spoke to me because I was the age of these kids. So it's, uh, it's Diane Lane's uh, – one of her first movies. Uh, and this kid, a uh, little French uh, boy named uh, Theolonius Bernard. And it's uh, – it also has uh, Sir Laurence Olivier in it. And it's really just a love story of these, these kids. And um, uh, touching movie, funny movie, uh, even if you're not 13 – and watching now, I think you'd you'd really, you'd you'd really love it. Um, and the kid in the in the film loves movies, and uh, he's learning English. He's in, in French, and he's learning English by watching these um, movies in English with with subtitles. Mm-hmm. And and it's funny because the director of uh, A Little Romance also did Slapshot and The Sting. Um, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, wow. And some of these movies are actually in A Little Romance. So he's using his own movies as uh, material that the kid likes. But um, those, are, those are two good – those are two, two of my go-to movies from 1979. Those are good tips. I'm going to have to watch them both. Please. Um, do you go to the movie theater anymore? I yeah. do, yeah, when I, when I can. I like, I like matinees. Because uh, there's fewer people, and then I get uh, get the seat I want. You know, I'm, I'm pretty anal retentive. If you've seen me with my gear, I have seen you with your gear. And, and uh, uh, you know, there isn't a scratch on that stuff. And I keep track of all every wing nut. Anyway, and it's all labeled, and I can put it together and take it apart accurately. So I like to sit. I'm such a, a nutcase with the, the movies and my experience. I want to sit, you know, dead center. And so matinees are usually empty enough, and, and so when I pick my seat and it's not too far back, it's not too close, and it's, and it's really in the middle, side to side, I'll even sit and count seats to my left and right to make sure I'm actually sitting in the middle, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I'm, I'm that guy. But, but I do, uh, I love that experience, especially, uh, you know, to hear the surround sound and have a big you know, wrap around screen if, if the theater's big enough. That, that, you can't beat that kind of experience. 
love that. It's great. I do you talking about your wing nuts and whatnot? Do you <laughs> do you like organizing stuff in general? Like, are you a person that goes to the container store and it's like, this is sweet? I like looking at that stuff. I probably don't organize my stuff as well as I should. Uh-huh. You know, not everything. It's funny, like. Mm-hmm. Not every not every type of organizing uh, appeals to me, uh-huh. um, but but uh, having my instrument organized appeals to me. Whether it's my spare stuff, whether it's uh, how it travels, how it fits in my vehicle, I'm into that. And um, and you know, going to a hardware store and just looking at stuff, I, I like that. I like yeah, the container store is fun. Uh, but uh, but I'm probably not as organized as I should be. There's certain aspects. Um, you know, like, you know, like paperwork and things like bills and things. I guess it's just not fun. <laughs> and so it, does, it doesn't interest me. So sure. that just gets piled up. Uh, and I know where it is if I need it. <laughs> but uh, so not, not every aspect of, of my life is, is as organized as it should be. Mm-hmm. I, it sounds like you're not. You're not willing to tolerate the disorganization like when it comes to your drum gear and so forth. You kind of need it to be. Yeah, I need it to be uh, a certain way. I I, I guess, again, maybe because I'm more passionate about it Mm -hmm. and I love it more, I'm going to uh, take the time. But the organization certainly pays off. Um, Yeah, I could find replacement parts quickly. yeah, it, I mean, there's there's no question. Or even even packing up and and loading loading my van is is very efficient. You know, I have I don't really use them anymore because it's memorized. But boy, back in the day before, you know, cell phone cameras um, or even regular I didn't take regular pictures, but I drew uh, diagrams of how all the cases fit in my vehicle, mm-hmm. so that you're not wasting time at the end of the night. And it's because I have so many cases. I mean, we're talking. I don't know if there's 28 cases, uh, you know, for one kid or even more. It's 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 pretty ridiculous, and so it all has to fit the same way. And if it's one o'clock in the morning, do you really want to be out there on the street trying to figure out how you got the stuff there in the first place? So I would I have these laminated diagrams that I don't really use anymore. But it's got a top view, rear view, and a side view of all the all the gear. Um. That's great. That's great. <laughs> do you like doing jigsaw puzzles? I used to as a kid, but I don't think I've done them since the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I can't say. Yeah, do you? Because I'm wondering if you like the. I mean, it sounds like there's a practical aspect to the making the diagrams of your van so that you actually can get all the stuff in right. there and get home from the gig or whatever. Sure. But I'm wondering if you also just like the puzzle solving aspect of that. Um, well, it's interesting. I like uh, the challenge of. Um, Sometimes say mounting a piece of uh, gear, a piece uh-huh. of percussion gear on the kit in a certain way where it's the most streamlined, efficient, uh, looks looks the best, uh, you know, isn't so obtrusive to the eye, you know. Um, I, 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 I enjoy that, finding mm-hmm. the right piece of hardware, the right gear, taking a hacksaw to this so it just looks cleaner. Um, do you have a lot of ideas like that, like cu- how to customize stuff or how you would redesign things? I Yeah, I do. And maybe because that stems from, um, I, you know, I always liked uh, architecture as a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I built a lot of models, you oh, know, yeah. it's a model model uh, building uh, as a kid, you know, whether it's a lot of vehicles, a lot of trucks, mostly trucks. And um, so I do uh, – yeah, I've always I, – I definitely have some – a passion for that, you know, yeah. an interest in that. And it, in fact, I was going to say um, recently, and I had a lot of fun, you know, our, our mutual friend Todd Zuckerman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say this because we, we, I just have to. One of the greatest all-around drummers alive today, Todd Zuckerman. Look him up, guys. Yeah. Um, he, he's a dear friend of, of both of ours. And he just uh, built a new drum set uh, to commemorate his 50th birthday. And uh, he invited me out uh, to the – we were out in Sycamore, Illinois. Uh, and I did – I helped him with another kit a couple of years before that. And he has a drum tech, but it's a big job to build a kit from scratch. You know, he has 
four rack toms, three floor toms, double bass, multiple snares, huge rack system. It's, it's a lot. And he said, so if you can come and help. And, and there were some modifications we were doing to that kit, too, to make things streamlined. And it was, it was fun, you know, working with him and his tech and, and, and making suggestions like, you know, if you take a hacksaw and you cut, I'm telling you, like this four inches off of this rod, it's going to look nicer and you'll see this badge here. And it's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get the hacksaw. <laughs> and so things, things like that. It was, it's fun. I really, I really enjoy that process. Mm-hmm. Have you been involved? Because you know a bunch of people at these drum manufacturing companies and stuff. Right. Do you get into, like, product suggestions for them or design suggestions? You know, I, I can't say I have too much. I mean, they've, mm-hmm. they've asked for, for feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and to that degree, I'm, I'm hoping that, the, I, you know, I would think that some of the feedback I give them then uh, might help them in their R&D, you know, development. Yeah. Is it something you have an interest in, or uh, I mean, do you ever think to yourself, I'll, I could make my own drum company and we would have the best drums because I would take this element from this one? And- yeah, I've thought, you know, I've, I've thought about that, actually. There's a gentleman I was talking to uh, about that uh, off and on. We've been talking about that for a number of years. It's, it's nothing that I, I feel like I have to do right now, but there is yep. an interest in that. I think I, yeah, I think I could come up with something... Uh, Interesting. I would think so. I would think so. Um, and you you continue to play, right? Where do you get to play? Do you have like a space, a practice space? Yeah, I've got a space, and then also uh, you know at my guitarist's uh, home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some drums there, so that that works. Um, I should be playing out more, but again, uh, just being out on the road with. Uh, with Jimmy and the Pumpkins, I, I haven't been, uh, but I need to go out and, and do some live playing. Uh, I really enjoy that. You know, there's nothing like having a, a big crowd or three people uh, in the audience. You know, to to uh, to share my instrument and my playing with. You know, mm-hmm. um, speaking of sharing, one thing I like. You know, uh, me and my guitarist, we have this side project uh, called the Chinese Professionals. And, and it's just the two of us and we just sort of, it's like free, free jazz, but it's free progressive rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's really no songs and there's no set list. And, uh, you know, we've been playing so long together. We, we just have these themes and we just play and we could open up for someone and play 45 minutes and, and be done and, and right. get off stage. And so one thing that I, that I enjoy about that, uh, group is, um, I set up the drums at the front of the stage where a guitarist might stand. And for two reasons. I don't want to be in the way of the drummer who's in the headlining band, who's behind me on the riser. And the advantage is that drummer could already be set up and mic'd up and ready to go, and I'm just set up in front. So when I'm done playing, I could just grab all my gear and get off stage. But one of the other reasons why I really like that is um, I feel like I'm educating uh, some of the audience members where... There's still a big mystery as to what drummers do back mm-hmm. there. You know, they if you think about the Muppet animal, he just sort of flails his arms. And you can't really see what he's doing. Right. But in general, I think a lot of people perceive drummers that way. Like, well, they're hitting things. But how did the hi-hats work? What are hi-hats? How does – they have no maybe sense of right. how the instrument is laid out and what they're doing. Yeah, and so, you can't see them going – or if you're guitar, you can see you the can two really hands see in front of you. And, right. And so – so with this band, I bring my acrylic set, so it's see-through, so that's great, and I have seven pedals on the kit. And so what I really like about that is that and anybody right in front of me can clearly see, oh, he's moved his foot to that pedal, and now it's operating that thingamajig mm-hmm. or, you know, yeah. what have you. And so I, I really I enjoy that. So I've got to go out there and, and do more of that. Yeah. That sounds great. Educate that audience. This is how the drums work, <laughs> whether they like the music or not. No, but that's part of it. I do, you know, and you were talking earlier about, you know, what I like about the drums. You know, after I set up the drums for a gig, I like to just stand back and, and take it in. And I, I admire the instrument and, and my design. And um, I feel good that I've successfully set up this monster and it's accurate. Like, it's, everything is where it should be, um, and, the, and the process works. All the memory locks, 
and the labeling, you know, with tape and mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. really I enjoy that even before I've played. Yeah, right. That's very interesting. That's a whole that's a project in and of itself. Right. Just right. The setting up of which, which is why even like working with with Jimmy, I, I like that, too, uh, where, you know, before I set up the drums, I tune the drums uh, a, a, a big tip for all you drummers out there. Please tune your drums uh, before you set them up. Literally have each drum mm-hmm. on, on the carpet, on the floor, on the throne, and, and just... Just because it's physically easier, or why would you? Why is it important well, to well, tune Well, especially separately? with uh, double-headed drums, which most drums today are, mm-hmm. are double-headed. Um, you want to isolate each head and hear each head uh, one at a time. Yeah. So if you have a drum like a tom-tom set up on a stand or on top of the bass drum, as you strike one, one head, you're hearing the bottom head resonate. Right. You're hearing the whole drum reverberate. And, and so that's going to uh, make it difficult to, to discern what's going on with the head you're tapping on. Right. So instead, take the drum off, put it on your throne, put it on a piece of carpet, really muffle it to the point where it just sounds pretty dead. But mm-hmm. then you can really hear what's going on mm-hmm. with, the, with the drums. So I, I tune up Jimmy's drums. And then set them up, and uh, and there's a line check. You know, I'll play a little bit, but I like I can't help it. I do the same thing with his drums. I might stand back and I'll I'll take some photos, or I take a look at him, and it's like, wow, this is a handsome set, or this thing is nailed. Like it's it is exactly in the same position as it was in the city yesterday and the day before. Like it is. In, in perfect, perfectly set up, same position, and he's going to sit down, and he won't notice anything different. It's great. I get off on that. <laughs> Seems satisfying. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Uh, I feel like we have a lot to talk about, so we should probably do this again. Yes. Has, what, have, how much time has passed? About, about 23 minutes? <laughs> sure. Let's, look. Let's look. No, that's, that's okay. Your device. Flip it over. I have no idea what time we started. But yeah, we have. We, there's more to talk about. An hour ago, yeah, yeah, history of Chicago. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk more about that stuff too. Absolutely about uh, your neighborhood growing up and things like that. You know what I like to do? I want to talk. I'd like to talk about you. That's what I'd like to talk about. <laughs> That's you a different are, show. Is it? That's, that's the show, show that I need to create right, and then exactly. have you be my guest. That's I think right. that's what I got to do. Now, that's I've right. had I've had a blast. Um, I guess, you know, just put a, a, a coin in me, wind me up, and here I am still talking. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Well, we'll do it again. Absolutely. Victor Salazar, thanks for being on What Else. Thanks for having me. Bye.